Darkness has descended upon the city, and the creatures of the night have begun to stir. This is the time when the veil between the realms of the living and the dead is the thinnest, and all that is is not what it appears to be. Like a lone sentinel, one candle flickers in the night, revealing all that lurks in the darkness. This is Ghost Chronicles, Book of Shadows. Welcome to the Nightmare. Oh, they cut that way too short. Yes, welcome to... Yes, you little witch. Go away! Anyways, welcome to Ghost Chronicles Book of Shadows. And they left out the most important part of that trailer. The music that trails off is so fascinating. I am Ron Kolick, your host for tonight. The Blonde Bombshell is giving out candy to all the little creatures of the neighborhood. And joining me all the way from sunny California is my favorite West Coast witch, Marla Brooks. Oh, I thought you were going to say the scary West Coast witch. No, my favorite. Okay. All the way from Wales is that crazy Englishman himself, that bald bombshell, Steve (laughs) Parson. That's what I said. So Halloween is all done in the UK there, Stephen? Oh, we've got another hour to go. Really? Yeah, before we hit midnight, the witching hour. Right. Do do they like, do your kids go out trick-or-treating and go in the houses getting candies and crap like that? Oh, hell yeah. We've had a full graveyard in our front uh, garden for the last week. Mm-hmm. The kids were dressed up today. They went uh, on a, a ghost tour of Pembroke Castle. They've been. They've had two different changes of costume and face paint, and uh, then they waited eagerly for trick or treaters to arrive at the door. And uh, when the first batch arrived, uh, Oscar, the younger one, the five-year-old, um, got a little bit nervous, backed into his brother, who promptly dropped the entire bucket of sweets onto the floor. <laughs> meanwhile, Excellent. meanwhile, ignoring the front door and the trick or treaters, which promptly closed in their face. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. There you go. Chaos. You're going to be known as the grumpy man in the neighborhood, pretty much. No, like... no, no. They then they then reopened the door and gave gave the first group of trick or treaters the entire bucket of sweets. Oh, oh. They... <laughs> they were they were happy. They were happy. <laughs> and then we took anyway, them to McDonald's. We have a great show tonight because we're going to tell horror stories, haunted stories. Bizarre stories, tales that we shouldn't tell, but we will. So, who's up first? Mm-hmm. Nobody? You? you me well, as, I, as I'm the one that's closest to finishing with Halloween and going through All Saints Day, the day when we celebrate that very famous girl band, um, I can give you... A, I'm going to stick to local stories from my part of the world, and... Um, from from indeed the next village to me, less than a half a mile from from this very studio, the ghost at Little Milford. And in Little Milford, Ooh. there is an old house down by the tidal Western Cledi River, which has had a resident ghost for many years, reputed to be that of the Caesar Matthias, who was a well-known pillar of the local establishment. 
1783, Matthias obtained a long lease on the Little Milford estate and later moved into the house with his wife, Alice. He lived there with the family until around 1779. And since he filled prestigious posts, for example, he was both the mayor of Pembroke and the high sheriff for the county, his house was very much part of the social scene for the Pembrokeshire gentry. He died in 1795. In the 1800s, the same house was used as a rectory, and it was said to be haunted by the ghost of the old gentleman, Matthias. Near the front door of the house, there was a curtain, behind which a set of stone steps led down into the cellar. The ghost used to come up the steps and emerge from behind the curtain, and it was firmly believed by the servants of the house that he lived in an underground passage that led from the cellar beneath the river to the old palace on the opposite shore near the, tax, the small town of Bulston. The story was that Caesar had encountered and killed a smuggler in the same tunnel long ago, and that his ghost could not leave the scene of this terrible and traumatic incident. But whatever the truth of the matter, when the Reverend Jackson Taylor was living in the house as the rector, the haunting became so bad that he could not keep any servants. None would last more than a few days. At last, he had to perform an exorcism, reading from the prayer book and going around the house with bell, book and candle. And just to make sure, he chased the ghost around the house with a horse whip. That apparently did the trick, and the haunting became much reduced. But later on, when the family of Mr. Harcourt Roberts occupied the house from, 17, from 1894, people were again convinced that the ghost was active in the cellar. There were unaccountable sounds, strange creaking sounds and footsteps walking across the yard before simply stopping. Mrs. Pauline Burden spent her childhood at Little Milford and was quite convinced of the presence of a ghost. She and her sister were too scared to go down into the cellar, but apparently her mother was not at all frightened by Caesar and indeed quite enjoyed his company. Now, that house still stands today. Um, obviously, I can't contact the owners. I've tried. They have no desire to talk about their experiences in the property. So whether the ghost of Caesar Matthias still haunts the building, the old rectory in Little Milford, barely a half a mile from this very spot. Wow. an open question. Very cool. That, that brought tears to my eyes. <laughs> <sighs> Quit eating that onion sandwich, okay? Hmm. So anyways, I have a strange tale. Uh -oh. A 52-year-old schoolteacher suddenly dropped dead in the classroom. And authorities are investigating the possibilities that the children in her class were able to do that through massive ESP. Pupils of the Virginia del Roca Rosette in Argentina, sixth grade class, uh, say they were... I can't see anymore. Participating in a mind control experiment conducted by one of the students before Delroa died of apparent heart attack. Hmm, that's interesting. 
police say of uh, this girl uh, teacher who uh, heard her yelling at the children and uh, walked into the classroom as the woman fell to the floor dead. She reports mm. the entire class was sitting still with their eyes focused forward in an eerie trance-like state, staring blankly at the teacher. The students came to life only when the other teacher screamed, help! The children say that a 11-year-old classmate gathered them together and convinced them to join in their plan. She told them uh, that, wait a minute, she told us to look at the teacher, I gotta get better light in here, <laughs> and think only about death, says one of the teachers, the students, excuse me. She said that would take care of the rest. Wow, we thought it was a joke, everyone said. Uh, Rosa was a mean old witch, no offense, Marla, and uh, we pretended to be using our mind to destroy her. We never thought it would work. So there you go. ESP, I mean, death by ESP. Interesting. Hmm. Could happen. Yeah, well, I'm gonna... an old witch. What else you do with old witches? You wish them to death. Excuse me? I said old witch, Marla, not young witch. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Okay. Young witches never forget. Just never mind. Uh, well, I've got tales from Hollywood. This Ooh, I love Hollywood because tales. Because there's just neat stuff. And so let me, let me start with the Cecil Hotel. It's supposed to be extremely haunted. And it says, if you've ever been visiting Los Angeles, stay away from the Stay on Main Hotel. It's one of the most gruesome it has one of the most gruesome histories in all of LA and any sane person would avoid it. It was originally named the Cecil Hotel and it's been around, you know, since a very long time, 50, 60 years. And the establishment has been home to two serial killers. Um, Richard Ramirez, known as the Night Stalker, was a self-described satanist and was convicted of killing 13 people in 1989. When he went on his murder spree, he lived at the Cecil Hotel. The hotel was also home to another serial killer, Jack Unterwager, or something close to that, um, who murdered three women while staying at the hotel. Now, to make things even more creepy, the hotel was reportedly one of the last places the Black Dahlia, the very famous Black Dahlia who was cut oh, into yeah. bits, um, was seen alive. But the event that caused the Cecil to rename itself Stay on Main Street happened much more recently with the death of Eliza Lamb. One day in 2013, guests started complaining about the strange-tasting water. And upon investigation, they found Lamb's body inside one of the water tanks on the roof. Ooh. Security footage was eventually released showing Lamb the night she disappeared, and it's one of the creepiest videos you'll ever see. For some reason, the elevator wouldn't close for her, and she seemed to be talking to someone who wasn't there. Yes. So that's the, that's a cold case, never been solved. But yes, she somehow... I visited that hotel. You did? I have visited and uh, spent a few hours in that hotel when it was called the Cecil. There you go. See in how... In 2000. What is 
Synchronicity. Well, it was because um, it was part of a tour, and um, we didn't do the tour, but we pinched the tour guide and then did our own version of it. And we realized that we weren't very far away from that hotel, so I went and had drinks and then asked the staff if I could have a look at Dar- um, the murderer's room, Dar- Dharma. Uh-huh. Now, Don, nice Richard, R- Richard Ramirez. Ah, sorry, Ramirez. Yeah, yeah. The other one, Jeffrey Dahmer. Right. Um, but, yeah, I've actually visited the room he, he was in. Now, see, you come 3,000, 6,000 miles, however the hell many miles it is, yeah. Yeah. To, to a hotel that, that's not far from me, and I've never been there. Hmm. Go figure. Well, there we go. Yeah. But it was, it was before they renamed it because it was the year 2000 when I was there. And before the woman ended up in the water tank. Yeah, that's nice. So, do you have a story, Steve, or you just want to talk about No, 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 no. No, I have a story. Um, Continuing the local theme, um, a a road and a bridge that I travel daily, and in fact had traveled today, Um, not three hours ago. But on Sunday, the 19th of October, 1890, Mr. J.W. Phillips, solicitor from Haverford West, was walking home following a visit to friends. Soon he was approaching the outskirts of the village of Merlin's Bridge. He was passing the old-fashioned house called Woodbine at about 10.20pm when he saw a strange animal gliding across the road just in front of him. It appeared to be about the size of a fox but was whitish in colour. He was certain it wasn't a fox, but the strange animal made no noise at all simply glided across the road, apparently oblivious to his presence, before disappearing. Some days later, on a cloudy moonlit night, Mr Phillips was passing the same spot when he saw a very large black dog. At least he thought at first it must be a dog. It was as big as a St Bernard and was standing with its front feet on a pile of stones. On closer examination, the creature proved not to be a dog at all, for it had the head of a goat with horns. And while Mr. Phillips watched, it moved to the entrance of the lane and then leapt over a pile of timber into a patch of brambles. But in spite of its large bulk, there was no noise at all. Later still, on November 10th, Mr. Phillips was again walking home from visiting friends around 10pm. He heard an intense noise as soon as he left his friend's house. It sounded like the flapping wings of a very large bird, sometimes in front of him, sometimes behind, sometimes above, and sometimes very close to his head. The noise continued all the way past the lower phrase drop and followed him as he walked along into the hollow called Culvert Bridge. There, he met two strange and ghostly men who passed him without word. Neither were they speaking to each other, Strangely, the noise of the wings stopped as soon as the men passed. Mr. Phillips continued towards the railway bridge near Merlin's Bridge. There he heard the flapping noise again. It got louder and louder and sounded like a panting noise followed by a deep-throated roar. At this point he became quite alarmed. He stopped and stood in a defensive posture with a walking stick raised, waiting for an attack from some animal. Then he heard an almighty crash in the bushes on top of the fence and saw a huge black creature in the darkness leaping down into the road. It then rushed off up the hill towards Woodbine. Mr Phillips walked many more times between Haverford West 
and his home by the same route, but never again experienced these strange and ghostly phenomena. But in 1920, he recorded that five other people had seen a large black creature, something between a dog and a calf in size, on the Pembroke Ferry Road, about two miles from Haverford West. Merlin's Bridge people said that there was a fear on that part of a road and would not pass it alone during the hours of darkness. There we go. Ooh. A road you... I know intimately well. Really? Have you ever done an investigation there? I've travelled that route many times at that time of So night. the answer would be no. <laughs> and I haven't encountered anything on that. Yeah, so you really didn't try. You just, well, I ain't seen anything, so it doesn't exist. Um, well, as uh, we, a lack of trying by visiting the spot probably a hundred times in the last ten years at that time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Just unlucky, I guess. Okay, just unlucky. And talking about being unlucky, mm. this poor woman in Australia certainly was. A woman was lost on an Australian country road. And she turned her car down a narrow path and drove straight into hell. Mm. I drove into a pit of fire, recalls the 57-year-old woman. And I saw Satan peering through my windshield. He grinned at me horribly, she said. Welcome to St. Hell. She said he looked like a man, but with charred skin, horns and wings. People were everywhere, she remembers. Their bodies were engulfed in flames, and they were screaming in agony. When they opened their mouths, fire shot out from their throats. They were all crying to God for mercy. She claims that she... Oh, wow. She claims that she... What? She claims that she, devil, reached... Oh, the the devil reached into the car. Man, I can't see for crap anymore. She claims the devil reached into the car and grabbed her shoulder, where it's still, she still to this day has a third degree burn. Without really knowing what to do, I slammed the car in reverse and stepped on the gas. Satan tried to hang on, but I managed to pull the car out of there. She somehow found her way out of the woods and back home, crediting St. Christopher's Metal that she had on her dashboard with giving her the strength to escape. Nice. Steve's, Steve owns a piece of hell, you know. I do. Does he? One square inch. And so you got I. it. And you got it from. Ron. Steve. I got it from Ron as a <laughs> gift. Well, where did Ron? Pick up hell. He gives a lot of hell. I didn't know yet. I, I have a piece a of hell to too. I know. So where did you? Well, put I, I don't actually have a piece of hell. I own a piece of hell. Exactly. I have the, I have the certificate in deeds that indicates I own a piece of hell. Brackets, Michigan. Is that I, like somebody buying one of those those stars that they were doing? Yeah, or one of those? No, no, those, no, 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 it isn't. You actually owned a piece of hell, and it's hell, Michigan. And they're very, very uh, protective of their country. They just don't sell to anyone. You have to have $6.66. Okay. <laughs> that makes sense, sort of. So, so Mala, what do you got? I've got a Bella Lugosi story. Ooh, Bella Lugosi. 
It's very, Lugosi, you know it's good. Very appropriate for Halloween. All right. So um, he died of a heart attack when he was 73. And his body and his body was prepared for burial at the W.M. Struthers Mortuary, which was on Hollywood Boulevard, just east of Vine Street, you know, famous corner Hollywood and, Bo- uh, Hollywood and Vine. Well, according to Vincent Price, when he and Peter Lorre went to view Bella Lugosi's body at the funeral store, Lorre, upon seeing Lugosi dressed in his famous Dracula cape, which is true, he was buried with that, but Peter Lorre quipped, he says, do you think we should drive a stake through his heart just in case? But I digress. Anyway, um, Lugosi in later years lived out his life in a really small apartment on Harold Way, which was just above Hollywood Boulevard. And every day he went for a walk down Hollywood Boulevard to his favorite cigar store to get a cigar. And at the time that he died, there was an agreement with the Hollywood Chamber of Commerce that funeral processions must avoid Hollywood Boulevard at all costs on the way to the cemetery so as not to upset the tourists and hurt local business. But according to one story that's been told and told and told again, the driver of Bella Lugosi's hearse felt his hands being yanked off the steering wheel as he was about to make a turn so he wouldn't go on Hollywood Boulevard. And the vehicle actually turned onto Hollywood Boulevard on its own. And it wasn't until the hearse got past the cigar store that he was able to regain control of the hearse and get the hearse off Hollywood Boulevard. So everybody says that was Bella Lugosi's last stroll down Hollywood Boulevard. Ooh. Mm-hmm. That is a good one. It is. I like it. And just, I- just to throw in something... Um, Lon Chaney, the original Lon Chaney, yes, used to take the bus for some reason to the studios. Really? And his favorite bus bench was at Hollywood and Vine. And they say that his ghost was seen there for quite many years. Yeah. So there you go. There you go. Take the bus. <laughs> well, this is uh, moving along very quickly. Are you running out of stories, Ron? Yeah, I, I, I got a bunch. <laughs> you could always read, yeah, you could always read Ghost Chronicles. Well, yeah. yeah, I can. I think I can spin us out to the to the break uh, with probably one of the most famous phenomena, paranormal phenomena, that uh, in Wales, and indeed the one that most people uh, would associate with Wales, and that is the corpse candle or the Canwyll Corf. In the early 1800s, Mr. Morris Griffiths was first a schoolmaster and then a minister of the Baptist chapel at Pont Vine in the Gwine Valley. One night, he was returning home from Tradafid when he spotted a large red light over a section of the roadway not far from the church. He had heard about corpse candles and assumed that this must be one. So being an educated and inquisitive man, he watched with great interest to see what might happen next. The Canoel Goth, or corpse candle, remained still, over exactly the same spot on the road for about a quarter of an hour. And then, still as bright as ever, it moved into the churchyard. Later, it came out again and hovered over a spot in the in the churchyard before disappearing 
A few days later, while Mr. Griffiths was in school with the children, he heard a great noise overhead, and he thought that the school roof might be collapsing. He rushed the children outside, and he went to investigate, but he could see nothing. Next day, one of his pupils, the son of a Mr. Higgin of Pomfine, took to his bed with a mysterious illness. A few short days later, the little boy died. When the carpenter came to fetch the boards to make the coffin, he had to climb up into the attic to fetch them, and while handling them, he made a noise that sounded to the schoolmaster exactly like the noise he had heard when he'd been in the school. And before the funeral took place, there was a spell of very heavy rainfall, but the event went off more or less as planned. However, when the funeral procession was making its way to the church, the roadway was flooded, and the passage of the coffin and the mourners was delayed for some time, for 15 minutes, while those who had boots assisted the others across the flooded area. This occurred exactly where Mr. Griffiths had observed the light hovering. Then the procession proceeded into the church, and later the boy was buried in exactly the same part of the churchyard indicated by the corpse candle ten days before. Ooh. And there's a second part, or there's a second story of a corpse candle which takes place in 1899 when a man from Walton West related that when he was a boy he and his younger brother were in bed one night pinching one another, generally fooling about as boys will before going to sleep. Suddenly, he saw a peculiar light on the bed. He stopped his horseplay and he drew his brother's attention to the light, but the other child could see nothing. He hit out at the light with his hand, upon which it shattered into a thousand fragments before reforming to its original shape. Then the light gradually disappeared. Some days later, a visitor to the house was given the boy's bedroom to sleep in and died during the night, just where the corpse candle had been seen. Wow. And that takes us right to the break. That was a perfect time in Steve. So anyways, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles, a special edition, The Book of Shadows, with Marla Brooks, Steve Parsons, and Van Helsink. We'll be right back. I am speaking to you via the medium of the ghost box. Many of you will know I carried out the first live radio broadcast from Haunted House way back in 1936 for the BBC. Now, thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I am still able to keep abreast of 21st century ghost hunting by listening to Ghost Chronicles International on Togginet, Para-X Radio, The Ghost Channel, and even on something called a podcast. Two splendid chaps host it. One is an American who calls himself New England's own Van Helsing, although I have discovered his real name is Ron Kolek. The other is Stephen Parsons, and he's a paranormal scientist. Well, mustache, I'm required elsewhere on something called a K2. But don't forget, I'll be listening in every Tuesday from 8 o'clock in Great Britain and 3 o'clock on the American Eastern Seaboard. I trust you will join me there. 
Hi, Steve Parsons here looking for sea monsters in Tenby, West Wales. And I'll be over in New England looking for your sea monsters this coming fall. Join me, Ron Kolek, and a host of others at Spirit Quest 2018. We'll see you there. Steve? I'm just stunned at those uh, that those trailers are still running. I'm still waiting for the introduction. Caught me completely. Anyway, you're listening to Ghost Chronicles The Next Generation with the West Coast Witch Marla Brooks, New England's own Van Helsing, Ron Kolek, and the Bald Bombshell, a.k.a. the Golden Stamp. Steve Parsons here in the UK. We're celebrating Halloween with a book of shadows and some spooky stories. Or at least Marla and I are, because we've checked and read ours in advance. <laughs> I just can't read. That's that's my problem. <laughs> I, 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 put extra, I put extra lights on and everything so I could Ron, see. Ron is hearing his stories for the very first time. <laughs> it's like, I can't even read these things. I gotta, maybe I clean my glasses. I don't know. So anyways, we have a special treat for the listeners of who's, who are still here. <laughs> well, we're not uh, do ghost sandwich. <laughs> yes, we have uh, we have a special uh, uh, story for us, Molly. You, since you uh, sent this to us, would you like to set it up for us? It's my favorite story, or one of my favorite Halloween stories, and it's called "Where Is My Liver?" And a friend of mine recorded this for one of his Halloween shows a few years ago, and. I love it, so I just thought I'd share. You'll see what it's all about. So Mm. let's... Where is my liver? Go straight to the store and don't fool around, his mother said sternly as she handed over the money. Your father's boss is coming to dinner tonight, and we're having his favorite meal of liver and onions. It's important that we make a good impression, so get the best liver they've got. I will, Ma, Tommy sulked. His mother had really been after him since he had brought home a failing report card. Tommy grabbed his bicycle from the garage and rode down the street. Then saw his friend Chad. Come on, Tommy, Chad called. The gang's playing baseball over at the park and we need a pitcher. Immediately, all thoughts of his errand fled from Tommy's mind. The boys headed towards the park. Tommy pitched a no-hitter to win the game for his team, but... By the time it was over, it was dark. Then, Tommy remembered his errand. The liver! He gasped. I've got to get to the store. But all the local groceries were closed. My mom's going to kill me, he gasped. First a bad report card and now this. I'm going to be grounded for life. As he rode home past the cemetery, he got an idea. It was an awful idea, but it would save him from the even more awful fate that waited him if he came home without a liver. His great-uncle had died a few days ago and had been buried in the cemetery. What harm would there be to remove it? His uncle certainly didn't need it anymore. Tommy hurried home as silently as he could, got his father's shovel. He returned to the cemetery and began digging up his great-uncle's grave. 
That night, his mother cooked up the liver and onions, and the boss raved about the meal and had such a good time that he didn't leave until quite late. Tommy went to bed that night relieved he had gotten away with it. He fell asleep almost as soon as his head hit the pillow, but woke up with a start soon after, sure that he had heard a voice. Where's my liver? A ghostly voice rose up from the staircase, deep and guttural. Tommy gasped in fear and flung himself under the covers as the thud of heavy footsteps reached the top of the stairs. The footsteps drew nearer until they reached Tommy's door. Who's got my liver? The horrible voice asked again. Go away! Go away! Go away! Tommy's voice whispered repeatedly. His whole body tremored in terror as once more the voice asked, Where's my liver? Who's got my liver? Sheer terror made him suddenly bolt. Tommy threw back the covers and found the shriveled face of his great uncle right upon him. We ate your liver! He shouted. I know you. Tommy, the rotting corpse of his great-uncle said softly, stretching out his bony hands toward the boy's shaking body. Tommy screamed! The next morning, Tommy's parents discovered their son lying dead on top of his bed. His liver had been ripped right out of his body, but the autopsy proved that the boy had already died of Well, yes. I that guess we watched the end of it. Well, basically, the autopsy proved that the boy died before they took his liver. Mm. Mm-hmm. I, I swear that bit is haunted. I couldn't play it at first, and then now look what happens to it. Yeah, the end faded out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I listened to the whole thing, and it played all the way through. Steve did too, right, Steve? It worked for me. All right. So who's up, Milo? Is that you? That that one was me. But you want me to do another one? I can do another. I got okay. Let me throw in a snippet here. Yeah, throw it's a snippet. Then I'll do my longer one. It's a little known fact about Dan Aykroyd's old house. Um, they were checking to find out where he got the idea for Ghostbusters. Well, it was after he saw some of the creepiest stuff ever going down in his very own house. He described paranormal activity like doors locking on their own and lights turning on and off on their own and a piano playing music on his own. And that's where he came up with Ghostbusters. Ooh, that's spooky. All right, so I have one, which I will attempt to read, which is probably not going to be great. (laughs) Don't you have a flashlight? I've got three lights on now. I even cleaned my glasses, so maybe isn't, I just isn't, cannot... isn't Jan there? You could borrow her glasses. I, I should let Jan read these because she's a far better reader than I. Jan, are you here? Let me get her. Hey, tell another story, and I'm going to get Jan. Meanwhile, I'm going <laughs> to. I'll roll back the clock to one of the very earliest accounts of paranormal activity ever documented oh. in oh. the English language. It takes place not very far from here, about five miles from here. But in the 12th century, a long time ago, 
and in the property of Elidor de Stackpole, who was one of the knights who was newly established in this colony of Pembrokeshire, known as Little England beyond Wales. The affairs of his state were in the capable hands of his steward, but one day a young red-haired man who called himself Simon appeared on the scene and took over the steward's job with such panache that nobody thought of rebuking him. First, he took over the keys to all of the rooms in his lord's house, and then he began to manage all of the business matters of the house and the land which, with such prudence and providence that everybody was delighted. Whenever his master or mistress secretly thought of some new item of clothing, or some new morsel of food, or an item for the house, it would miraculously be procured by the young man, who would simply say, you wish that it would be done, and it shall be done. The lord and lady of the manor appeared to have no secrets from Simon, for he knew where all of their most treasured possessions were hidden, as well as being able to read their thoughts. They tried to economise and to put some of their money aside as an insurance against a rainy day, but the young man took to telling them off, saying, Why are you afraid to spend your gold and your silver, since your lives are so short and since your savings will never be of any use to you? Then he began to display distinctly socialist tendencies, serving the choicest meat and drinks to the rustics and hired servants, and justifying his generosity by saying that those who laboured hardest on the estate should be rewarded with the most abundant of supplies. At last, the young Simon let his ambition get the better of him, and he took to making decisions about the everyday running of the estate without any reference to his master or his mistress. In effect, he took over the whole estate, much to the irritation of everybody except the well-fed rustics. Then it was noticed that Simon never showed any interest or signs of devotion to God, and he never went to church. Furthermore, nobody knew what happened to him at night, for he never slept in the manor and yet he was always in his office, bright and early every morning, going about his duties. At last, some of the family took to spying on Simon, and it was discovered that he spent the nights near a mill, where there was a pool of water. Furthermore, he could be seen there talking to shadowy, unknown persons. This convinced Elidor de Stackpole that something fishy was going on, and he summoned Simon to his room to give his, his discharge and ask for the keys of the estate to be returned. The red-haired steward handed back the keys without question, having held them for more than 40 days. Upon being interrogated by the lord of the manor as to who he was, Simon simply replied enigmatically that he was begotten by the wife of a local rustic by a demon who had appeared in the form of her husband. So saying, Simon disappeared from Stackpole as suddenly as he had arrived. And that account was recorded in the 12th century by Gerald de Cambrensis, who was born at Manabea Castle in Wales, and recorded in another of his accounts uh, the, the first documented account of the poltergeist. Wow, that's pretty cool. Nice. So now we have a special guest 
storyteller. The Elvira of the Love Shack. <laughs> St. Jan. Okay. Twice dead in Wisconsin. In 1925, a few miles south of Portage, Wisconsin, August and Patricia Hines and their children suffered trauma of the supernatural variety. The family, which also included seven-year-old Freddie, nine-year-old Charles, and 11-year-old Elizabeth, had moved into the simple two-story farmhouse 10 years before and lived there happily without incident. But then, in February 1925, an unexplained fire destroyed one of the barns. In June, another barn burned, also without explanation. And then, late one June evening, as the family sat down to supper, they heard the sound of footprints descending from the second floor. Young Charles and his father investigated, but found no one else in the home. After they had sat back down again with the rest of the family, the footsteps began again. This phantom sound continued on and off for the next three months. Further incidents began to occur. Patricia discovered that each morning her broom was missing from the kitchen, only to turn up in some strange place. It was Mala. <laughs> such as a remote corner of the property or a different room in the house. Suspecting the children up to mischief, August and Patricia questioned each one, but all insisted they had nothing to do with it. Exasperated, Patricia decided to chain down the broom and lock the kitchen door. The next morning, she was horrified to discover the door still locked, but the chain broken and the broom outside in the yard. The events culminated one evening when August and his neighbor returned from a hunting trip. Once everybody, including the guests, was seated at the table, the sound of footprints began. August recounted the stories of this mysterious ghost to their guest. The neighbors decided to take action. Thinking that he might scare the ghost, he took his unloaded shotgun and crept toward the stairs where the sounds of footprints, footsteps had been heard. He lived out, leapt forward a while, Oh, excuse me. He leapt out, left forth a wild scream, and pointed his gun. Though he believed his gun to be unloaded, a shot flew out, shattering the plaster and wallpaper. Freddie Charles recalled hearing a moan after the shot, and all the family members heard the sounds of moans and cries coming from the fruit cellar. Once the sounds had ceased, the family never again haunted, was never again haunted by the spirit of the house. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah, and she read that almost as bad as me. No, she, she did, did not. not. Yes, she did. Absolutely. No. Rubbish. Dismissed. Tommy Rot. Thank you. Yes. Stay where you are, Jan. Yes. Since when do you hear footprints, huh? It's footsteps. <laughs> One okay. mistake. I just got to make a mistake one. every line. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyways, I got a quick one. I'm going to throw this in here before we get to somebody. I don't even know who's up anymore. Okay. Hey, kid. That's not your daddy. It's your mummy. That's right, folks. Swiss female archaeologist alone in an ancient tomb with, with a 500-year-old Incan mummy was hit from behind and knocked out cold. When she came through, she found herself naked in the decaying mummy mummy on top of her. She is now pregnant and claims that the mummy is the daddy. To make matters worse, the obstetrician in Lima, Peru, agrees, saying there's a 98.6 chance that the mummy is the father. 
the woman has decided to keep the child in the interest of science. Okay. Just saying. Yeah. National Enquirer. Left you uh, speechless, didn't I? Yeah, no, the National Enquirer. Weekly News News. Weekly World News. Okay, that figures. Yeah. yeah. All London right. bus found on the moon. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I'm going to tell the story of the White Lady of Elysian Park because mm-hmm. Elysian Park is really close to Dodger Stadium, and that's where we lost this week. Anyway. Yeah, that's a shame. Oh, shush. Um, <laughs> uh, who won? Was it Boston? I think. Was that the team that beat him? I'm not sure. Okay, yeah, like you don't know. Right. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. The White Lady of Elysian Park. All right. So in the years after World War II, it had been reported that some of the returning veterans were still filled with violent thoughts. And one day, uh, two young women were walking down Sunset Boulevard when two Navy guys drove up and offered them a ride, and they accepted After some flirting, they decided to pick up some beer and cruise over to a makeout spot in Elysian Park. Now, the area of the park is bordered by Silver Lake on the west, Echo Park on the southwest, Chinatown on the south, and the 5 Freeway on the north. It's located right next to Chavez Ravine, where Dodger Stadium is located, and next door also to the Los Angeles Police Academy. Um, now, the park is like the second largest park in L.A. It's like 600 acres. It's, it's big, and it's the oldest park like for, founded in 1886. Well, as the story goes, upon arriving at the park with their dates, the sailors started drinking and getting a little bit fresh, but the girls, re- you know, they resisted. They were good girls. That's World War II. Um, after several failed amorous attempts, the two men eventually let one girl go, but the other was not so lucky. Not only did they rape and kill her, they also cut off her head. The murdered girl's head was found nearby, but her body was never found. So to this day, whenever young lovers are spending an evening at Elysian Park, they always keep one eye open for the ghostly vision of the poor headless girl dressed in white who comes back looking for her lost head, or perhaps to claim a new one. Hmm. Is yeah. that is that the is that the meaning of the word giving head? It could be in certain circles. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, I got a quick quick one. Mm-hmm. I'll throw this in here. This boss is a real stiff. When the executive of a Pittsburgh insurance company died. His subordinates couldn't stand the thought of working without their popular boss, so they had him stuffed and dressed in a smart-looking suit and propped him up at his desk. He's quite the guy, said one of his loyal employees, but we just couldn't imagine the office here without him. There you go. Told you it was shot. That's like Jeremy Bentham in England. It is. Yeah. Really? Except, Except his head isn't his real head, but the body is. Ooh. I think they put a wax head on him because the real, real head was starting to rot or something. Oh, that's too bad. He was fraying at the edges. Yeah, okay. Fraying a little bit, is he? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Sort of like me, actually. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't I... smell as bad, though. Yeah, that's true. Anybody up? Anybody got one? Well, I'll give you a choice because I think I've got room for one more. Uh, they're both moderately long, so you can either have an ecclesiastic tail. Uh, from Haverford West, 
or you could have the tale of a ghostly pirate ship from Tenby. I'll I'll give that to uh, Mala. What's what's your choice, Mala? Oh, let's go pirates. I knew I was going to go with that too. Good girl. I thought you'd go pirates. Uh Well, this is set in the town of Tenby, which is where I was looking for sea monsters not very long ago. It's about 16 miles. Still are, according to the advertisement. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And you've got the new audio. Um, Nonetheless, Tenby is a place (laughs) I visit probably once or twice a month. It's a summer, but it's a, a seaside town. It's a holiday town. It's um, and we've done live Ghost Chronicles Internationals from Tempe as well. But on a dark midwinter afternoon in about 1558, during the reign of Queen Elizabeth I, the people of Tempe reported seeing a strange vessel sweeping towards the town from across Carmarthen Bay. It was driven by storm force winds and mighty waves from the east, and it was obviously out of control. The masts were broken, along with the spars. The sails shredded. As it came closer and closer to the shore, the people could see that it was unmanned. But there were strange lights and spirit forms on the deck, and word soon spread that this was a phantom ship, or at least a solid ship, but populated by phantoms. As darkness fell, the people could just make out the shape of the ship close in shore, as she foundered upon a sandbank close to North Beach. Throughout the pitch-black night, the people heard wailing and other strange ghostly sounds, as a result of which those who lived close to the beach had very little sleep. At first light, the storm calmed, and the townspeople went down to the shore to search for the shipwreck. But there was not a trace of the ghostly vessel. No timbers, no rigging, no barrels, no strips of sail, no flotsam or jetsam of any sort. But upon the sand lay a man dressed in strange clothes, half drowned and semi-conscious. The people pulled him clear of the waves and managed to revive him, and for a few days he stayed in the town as he was nursed back to health. But he was a strange fellow, unwilling to talk about himself, or even give his name to those who would be his friends, and at last he moved out to live on the rocks of St. Catherine's Island, which was cut off from the town at every high tide. One day, a local shepherd heard about the sailor's hermit-like existence on the island, and he walked across at low tide with some food and some clothes. The man was grateful, and over the days and weeks that followed, the shepherd went across to bring him food whenever he came into Tembe to visit the town's market. The sailor seemed to spend his time sitting on a crag, gazing out to sea, with the seabirds wheeling about him. On each visit, the shepherd begged the sailor to abandon this bleak and joyless existence and to go home with him and to stay with him, but the stranger always courteously refused. Then at last, one stormy day, when the waves were crashing against the seaward side of St. Catherine's Island, the stranger opened his heart to the shepherd. In a torrent of words, he talked about his former life as a pirate, and he related how, in a fit of jealousy, he had murdered the woman he loved most. He said that all his comrades had perished on the ship, which was then manned by ghosts while driven by the storm onto the sands of the town's north beach. At times, he said, as he sat upon the cliffs, facing out to sea, sea maidens came and beckoned to him, calling out and calling him 
that his girl was happy and at rest. Suddenly, as a great foam-crested wave rolled in towards the cliff where the two men were sitting, the pirate stood up in a highly agitated state. He pointed at the wave and shouted, I come, I come, receive me blessed spirits. And before the shepherd could stop it, he leapt from the clifftop into the surging foam and was immediately lost to view. The horrified shepherd could do nothing and returned to the mainland alone. The pirate's body was never found. And to this day, people visiting Tembi on dark winter's evenings swear that they can hear the man shouting, I come, I come, receive me blessed spirits, above the howling of the waves and the crying of the seabirds. Mm. That's, yeah, brought tears to my eyes. Who's to put a bit of effort into mine? Tears. Tears, I say. Wow, moving right along. That was good. I don't know why we bother. I've stayed up late for this shit. I know, it was it was good. I enjoyed it. I loved listening to your voice at this time of night, you know. It's just uh now that uh Halloween is over It is for me. Yeah. No it's not. Six minutes. Close enough. Anyway, Mile, do you have everything or I got another quickie if you want. I've I've Fine. got a I've got a quickie too, but you know, choose whichever quickie you want. Go, 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 no, no, it's just it's a quick thing about the Beverly Hills. They have a, a Bermuda Triangle because there are spots on Earth that are just odd, and a section of land in Beverly Hills has become really notorious for accidents that may have start, and they've started to call it the Beverly Hills Bermuda Triangle because mm. on this tiny little patch of land, Howard Hughes crashed his airplane, Bugsy Siegel was murdered. Rock duo Jan and Dean were involved in a highly bizarre car accident that almost killed them. And the Hollywood publicist recently, Ronnie Chasen, was shot in her car. There have been many other odd tales that have turned this intersection into one that should be avoided at all costs. Ooh. So let's leave this stories on a positive note. And I'm going to talk about this uh, place in your area, Mala. Yeah. Los Angeles. Ooh. The men's room at a small Los Angeles park has suddenly become a very popular spot because very popular users swear that their luck changes dramatically when they use the toilet. The Is that the one where George after, Michael got arrested? Yeah, no, go ahead. Yeah, the excitement began after three men from Los Angeles won million-dollar lottery prizes. As it turned out, all three used the same toilet in the park. <laughs> Subsequently, many other people have tried their magic commode with some startling results. Some believers that even miraculous cures of crippling illness, illnesses have happened there. So go to this magic toilet and, and uh, you can win the lottery and you can come to Spirit Quest next year, Mala. There you go. That's what George Michael was doing. <laughs> That's a different <laughs> kind of uh, magic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, it's a men's room, so I would have to find a man to go in there for me. No, they show pictures of women coming out of it. Oh, okay. So anyways, I want to thank both of you for uh, joining me tonight in this special uh, edition of uh, Ghost Chronicles Next Generation. You did a fabulous job. The stories were interesting, and uh, there's the tune, so we got to go. So until then, 
Happy Halloween, everyone! Happy All Saints Day! Blessed be, happy Samhain! And happy birthday to Sam Hain! Jeez! <laughs> Goalies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us good luck.